Revelation 19 tonight. Beginning at verse 11, we come to the climax of the book of Revelation as far as I'm concerned, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we ended with chapter 19, verse 10, where John tells us to worship God because the testimony about Jesus is really the spirit or focal point of all prophecy. And so we have learned throughout our study of Revelation that so much more than just giving us um, future events and satisfying our curiosity about future events, that John is wanting to give us a really true picture of the glorified Christ, who Jesus is in all of his glory. And to try to shift our focus away from primarily viewing and even visualizing Jesus in our minds and hearts as the humble servant of God who came to earth and laid down his life. That's a very important aspect. But there's also the aspect that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And that's where Revelation gives us that, in a sense, other side so that we have a balanced picture of who Jesus is. He's not only the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And with that, then, we are introduced in chapter 19, verse 11, I believe, to the Lord Jesus Christ leaving heaven and coming to set up His kingdom on earth. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and here came a white horse. The picture that John is giving us it was very familiar in the Roman uh, world. It was a picture of a victorious conqueror. And John is giving us the language, uh, couching it in that language to remind us that when Jesus comes this time, he is coming as the victorious conqueror. He's not coming like he did the first time in humility, laying aside the independent use of his attributes, following the spirit and laying down his life. No, this time he is coming to conquer, to put aside once and for all, all rebellion against his authority and to finally set up his earthly kingdom. Notice John says the one writing it was called, first of all, faithful. The word means one who we can rely and count on always. That's really important. Jesus Christ is faithful. He is one that you and I can rely and count on always. He is also called true. This has a couple of different meanings. First of all, it means genuine instead of false. There's been a lot of false Christs and false messiahs, the Bible says, down through history. This is the real deal. He's the real Christ. It also means he is the ideal Instead of imperfect. That everyone who's tried to have authority and rule and, and have always been imperfect. He is the ideal ruler, if you will. And the Bible goes on to say, and with justice, he judges and goes to war. One of the things that Revelation has reminded us of is that Jesus, as God, and God the Father and God the Spirit are no different, always act in accordance with who they are. In other words, the standard of their being, the nature of who they are, they always act in accordance with who they are. 
And that's so foreign to us because even the best of men are men. And, and people are so fickle and, and they're so inconsistent. And so when you have a God who's always consistent and he always behaves consistently with who he is, that certainly sets him apart as well. And then the Bible goes on to say his eyes are like a fiery flame. John is again giving us a picture of his piercing, penetrating insight into the reality of each and every situation. Jesus Christ, obviously, as God, knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from his eyes. And there are many diadem crowns, John says, on his head. It it indicates his right to rule. And notice that the Bible uses the word diadem rather than Stephanos. There's two Greek words that can be used in conjunction with the crown. Stephanos is a crown that can be earned. For instance, you and I will get crowns, rewards in heaven for faithful service to the Lord. Those are crowns that we earn. But Jesus doesn't need to earn any crowns. He has these crowns by the very nature of who he is and has the right then to rule. Notice also the Bible says he has a name written that no one knows except himself. As I studied this, it just reminded me that really there is still mystery with God. Even when we get to heaven, even when we see him revealed to us, there's going to be things about the person of God that's just beyond anyone in creation to be able to wrap their mind around. In fact, this reminds me that Jesus' greatness is really inexpressible. That, that there's no way to totally even articulate and express how great Jesus is. And then the Bible goes on to say, verse 13, He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood. This is not His own blood. This is the blood of His enemies. And Jesus will defeat His enemies once and for all. And then the Bible says He is called the Word of God. The Word of God means He is the complete. He is the whole expression of God to us in an understandable way. It would be one thing to say Jesus completely expresses who God is, but we can't understand it. But the expression, the Word of God, helps us to understand that that God is going to speak to us through Jesus in ways that we can understand who He is. Now again, we'll never understand Him in His infiniteness. Because there's just some things about God that are beyond us. But in ways that we can grasp, in ways that we can understand, Jesus truly is the Word of God. He came to express God in a full and complete way. That's why He could say to those who were following Him, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Uh, there, There is nothing else. You know, you don't need to say, well, show us the Father, show us the Spirit. Because if God is one then Jesus fully expresses who God is in totality. And that's implied in the phrase, the Word of God. Now, there aren't too many verses in the Bible where you and I can point to as New Testament Christians and say, we're in that verse. But verse 14 of chapter 19 is one of those verses. The Bible says the armies that are in heaven dressed in white, clean, fine linen were following him on white horses. This term armies includes both angels in the Bible and men. 
And so in verse 14 of Revelation 19, you and I will accompany him back to earth at this time. That's pretty cool. We're in that verse. That's us. Verse 15. From his mouth extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the nations. Notice the only weapon that Christ needs is his word. Jesus uses the word of God to defeat his enemies. He's given us a great example. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When he was tempted by Satan, he would come back with Satan and say, it is written. It is written. And Jesus always was giving us a great example that in any warfare that we find ourselves in, any temptation, any challenge in life, the best thing we can have is the Word of God. That's why all of us need to commit ourselves to continuing to grow in our understanding and comprehension and apprehension of the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. And we see Jesus Christ here at the very end of human history as we knowing it at His second coming, using His Word to defeat His enemies once again. The Bible says He will rule them with a rod of iron. First of all, the word rule, I pointed this out before, literally means to shepherd. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament to speak about pastors, pastoring or shepherding a flock. So his rule will be a little bit different than what we are used to in rule. But the Bible says, unlike a shepherd who literally, who usually leads with a shepherd's crook, he will lead in the millennial kingdom with a rod of iron, meaning his rule will be shepherd-like but it will also be unyielding and firm. Whatever Christ says will go in the millennial kingdom. And if someone doesn't like it, then Christ will deal with them immediately. Many Old Testament passages talk about the conditions in the millennial kingdom. The Bible goes on to say, He stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. He is over all others. He is unlike all others, as we've sung tonight, holy. Holy simply means that God is separate from everything else in creation. Nothing is like God. Nothing is like Him. And Jesus Christ, one day, is going to be over all, and He's certainly unlike all. A different picture maybe than the one we get of Jesus in the Gospels, but a very important picture. This is why you and I as Christians need to get into the book of Revelation, because we are reminded of who our Jesus is and who he's going to be and what kind of king we are following and what kind of kingdom we're going to be a part of. In fact, next week, not to get ahead of myself, but next week after we look at this, these passages tonight, you know, for Christians, the best is yet to come. And so next week, we're going to be looking at chapters 21 and 22, talking about the conditions of the eternal state. What's it going to be like for us? I mean, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions that we have about what eternity is going to be like. But what the Bible does say, much of it is contained in Revelation 21, 22. And we're going to be looking at that next week. Verse 17, then I saw one angel standing in the sun. He shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky, come gather around for the great banquet of God. 
To eat your fill of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses and those who ride them, and all the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. You see, when Jesus Christ comes, it's going to be a time of great destruction and many deaths. And something very significant in this passage is notice how often the Bible uses the word flesh. It is in their flesh that they're rebelling against God. And it is in their finite flesh that somehow they think they're going to beat God, if you will. Win this struggle, this war against God. In fact, in verse 19, the Bible says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and his army. You and I may wonder, how will mere men even get to the point where they think they can go uh, to war against God? But I think we underestimate that when the Bible teaches that when men reject the truth, And remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When men reject the truth, they open themselves up to all kinds of absurdity and delusions. I mean, we even see that today. That's why it's so important, the Bible says, that when we hear the truth, that we embrace it. Because if we don't embrace the truth, we open ourselves up to deception, to delusion, to absurdity. That's why sometimes if we're committed to Christ and we're walking with Christ and there's another Christian over here that's walking out of fellowship with Christ, we even scratch our heads and go, how in the world are they they doing that? And how can they live that way? Well, because they've gotten to a point where maybe they've even deceived themselves because they've rejected the truth. And we see that here once again at the very end of human history in Revelation 19. And then the Bible says the beast was seized along with him, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. First of all, notice that the beast and the false prophet have have a, a, a significant difference from the rest of those who will be thrown into the lake of fire. They're going to go in a thousand years early for what they have done. And also the Bible here clearly is reminding us too that there is no such thing as annihilationism. That somehow people just, whether they be the false prophet or the beast or, the, or, or Satan himself or any human being who rejects Christ, that somehow they're just annihilated. No, God will never annihilate anyone of his creations. But the Bible does teach that there is a lake of fire which equals everlasting torment. Then the Bible says in verse 21, the others were killed by the sword or who were killed by the sword that extended from the mouth of the one who rode the horse and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. Doesn't paint a very good picture of those who stand against Christ, does it? But it does remind us of a couple things. When people talk about Revelation being such a book of doom and gloom, we all have to be reminded that, listen, you and I alone determine what kind of future we're going to have. God doesn't determine that. You and I determine that based upon whether we receive Christ 
or we reject Christ. You and I alone determine the future we're going to have. And remember something else. That whatever these folks who ultimately reject Christ, whatever they enjoy down here on this earth for however long they are alive, that's the best they will ever experience. For you and I who are Christians, whatever trials and tribulations and challenges we go through, that's the only hell we will ever know. Because for us who know Christ, the best is yet to come. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding his hand, the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized a dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan and tied him up for a thousand years. Now, a couple of things in chapter 20. Now we go from the transition of, okay, Jesus Christ has come He has put down all of rebellion and now he's going to set up his kingdom. So now in chapter 20, God is going to give us some pertinent information surrounding what this thousand year kingdom is going to look like. And to me, it's very obvious that it is a literal thousand years. Seven times in Revelation 20, the phrase thousand years is used. And for those that don't interpret the Bible literally, they have a very hard time trying to fit Revelation 20 in with their theology. I believe in a literal thousand year kingdom. And the Bible says one of the uniquenesses of this thousand year millennial kingdom is that unlike any other time, Satan and his demonic realm are going to be totally rendered inoperative. They're going to be placed out of, out of the way so that they cannot deceive or tempt or anything during that thousand years. Now, a couple things before we go on. First of all, I've heard many say throughout my life about Satan being bound and and binding Satan. Folks, this is the only place in the Bible where Satan is tied up or bound. That there is no scripture in the New Testament that teaches us today, as New Testament Christians, that somehow we can tie up and bind Satan. We can't. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against his fiery arrows. And 1 Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 9 to resist him strong in the faith. But that same passage tells us that God allows within his sovereignty, Satan, to walk around like a roaring lion. We can't bind Satan. We can resist him. We can put our armor to stand against him, but we cannot tie him up and restrict him. But one day, one day he will be totally restricted during the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. The Bible goes on to say that he's going to be loosed and we're going to talk about why that is as well. Notice verse three. The angel then threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it so that he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a brief period of time. Now, one of the reasons, and there are probably several reasons why God does this, but one of the reasons is, is because during the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ on earth, it's going to be a perfect environment. 
mean, you want to talk about environmentally how it's going to be, and I don't mean climate-wise, I mean just the spiritual atmosphere, it's going to be a wonderful environment. Everyone who enters the millennial kingdom is going to be only the righteous enter the millennial kingdom. And then Satan and his demonic realm is, is removed. So there can be, you know, no temptation or deception. Pretty nice. It's going to be a great blessing to be a part of the millennial kingdom. But one of the things that I'm sort of getting ahead, but it touches on it here. One of the reasons why God then at the end of the thousand years is going to let Satan out is because God is going to show mankind that even in a perfect environment, even without the influence of Satan, man at his core is sinful and rebellious. And given the chance, given the chance, man will still choose to rebel against God even in that perfect environment. Because again, man's problem isn't always the environment. As Jesus said, out of the heart is where sin comes. And you can put man just like God did in the Garden of Eden. And you can put them in a garden like he did Adam and Eve. And even take away Satan, unlike he did in the Garden of Eden. And man will still rebel. As we're going to see in just a moment. But here's a really cool part. Notice verse 4, one of my favorite verses. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. Wow. Folks, again, I think that's one of those verses that includes you and I. I think we're in that verse. See, one of the things that the Bible reminds us is in salvation... You and I as Christians are not lifted back to the level from which Adam fell. We're lifted higher. And we're not lifted to the level of angels. We're lifted higher. In salvation, we are lifted above all principalities and powers to rule and reign with Christ. What a privilege. God has taken us who, the Bible says, were dead in our trespasses and sins and has lifted us up to the highest of heights. And think about the contrast with Satan right now. Satan, according to the Bible, was, a, was an angel called Lucifer. Maybe the greatest angel that God ever created other than maybe Michael the archangel. Lucifer had it made. He was in the very presence of God. And yet, down through the ages, see how far Satan has fallen in stages. He's fallen from the highest of heights one day to enter the very lake of fire. And yet you and I have such a different destiny ahead of us. Those of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins will one day rule and reign with Christ. What a contrast. What glory. The best for us, for us folks, is yet to come. But then John says, I also saw... The souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus. Those who were killed during the tribulation period because of the word of God. These had not worshipped the beast or his image and had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or hand. They came to life also and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice verse 5 though, the rest of the dead. I believe this is talking about all those who did not accept Christ. 
did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. In other words, only the righteous enter the millennial kingdom, either in glorified bodies or in their natural bodies after the tribulation period. That's why the Bible goes on to say this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection in the Bible is not an event. It's an order of resurrection. It simply means that there are many who are going to be part of the first resurrection that takes them to this great place, if you will. The others have to wait for a thousand years until the millennium is over. And then all the unrighteous dead are raised and will go to what's called the great white throne judgment that we're going to get to in just a moment. That's why the Bible says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, folks, I know in the book of Revelation, and especially in the passages we're talking about tonight, there's a lot that we're getting. I would just like to encourage you, don't try to take it all in. And, and don't try to get sidetracked on minor issues that may come up. Try to major on the majors and not major on the minors. For instance, so far, to me, the big thing is Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom. You and I are going to be part of that thousand-year kingdom. Before that thousand-year kingdom starts, Satan and his demonic realm are going to be removed. And we are going to rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Those are the biggies so far. But notice verse 7. Now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for the battle. Incredible, isn't it? Only the righteous enter the millennial kingdom a thousand years before. And yet the Bible teaches in many other passages that there will be children born to those who are not glorified in their bodies yet during that thousand years. And the Bible then obviously implies here that many of those children will grow up and even though they will outwardly conform to the rule of Christ during that thousand years, their heart is not really with Christ. And all it's going to take is a leader, someone like Satan, to come on the scene once again and say, hey guys, let's, let's rebel against this God. We don't need Him. We don't want Him to rule our lives any longer. Let's, let's go after Him. And that's all it's going to take. And the Bible says that there are going to be a massive humanity coming out of the millennium who are going to, in a sense, form one final unfaithful rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible says, look at verse 8, they are as numerous as the grains of sand in the sea. Pretty incredible, isn't it? Perfect environment. No one can blame Satan. Can't go to the whole red fox line of the 60s and 70s. The devil made me do it. Can't use that during the millennium. Until that moment when Satan is finally released. But you see, Satan, again is only, in a sense, playing upon the heart that's already there. Throughout that thousand years, many people, as it says, many as, many as the grains of sand in the sea, their heart won't be in it. Now again, during the millennial kingdom, one of the differences is they will have to conform to the standards of Christ. Sort of like 
Sometimes, you know, when our kids are little and we ask them to do something, they do it, but they go, I'm not liking what I'm doing, you know. There's going to be a lot of people during the millennium, they'll follow Christ, but they're not going to like it very much. They went up on the broad plain of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are too. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. And finally, the Bible says here in chapter 20, verse 10 of Revelation, that the career of Satan will come to an end once and for all. Yeah. (laughs) But after this moment, There is one more, in a sense, piece of business that God has to do with the unrighteous before you and I begin to enjoy chapters 21 and 22 and all that awaits us that we're going to talk about next week. Before that comes a very sobering scene. And as you come to chapter 20, verse 11, I was impressed by the spirit to just weigh each word. When the Bible says, then, I saw a large white throne. And folks, the the people who come to this throne for judgment are not you and I. We will never stand at the great white throne judgment. This judgment is for all the unrighteous of all the ages. And the Bible says, the one who was seated on it, And the earth and the heaven fled from His presence. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. First of all, notice that every category of the unrighteous stands individually before God. And the flight of heaven and earth underscore the reality that for those, there is nowhere to hide from God or from this moment. They may deny that this moment will never happen, but folks, the Bible clearly says that one day they will stand before their Creator at this judgment. And the Bible says then, books were opened. And then there was another book that was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. See, these books, these other books, besides the book of life, record all the things that they've done in their body while they were here on earth. The book of life simply records whether we have faith in Christ or lack thereof. In fact, just by the fact that this book even exists shows that access to God, if you will, or relationship with God is only by faith alone. If somehow we could work our way to heaven or that that we could do enough good works to, to develop a relationship with God, then the book of life would not be necessary. The, the, the other books that record the deeds that men do would be sufficient for judgment. But that's why the book of life is also included here, as we're going to see in just a moment. Why is God judging these people then according to their works or deeds? 
Because the Bible clearly teaches in many places that just like there are degrees of reward in heaven, there will be degrees of misery and torment in hell. And the Bible says the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, the final destination for all who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. Very sobering. Notice that the great white throne is not a trial. All the facts are already in. Either our name is already there or it is not. And I can't help but read and study Revelation chapter 20 without saying to any who I teach this passage to, are you sure your name is written in the book of life? That is the most important answer you will ever give in your life to any question. Is your name written in the book of life? Has there been a time in your life where by faith you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Because if your name is not there, the destiny of every individual whose name is not there is eternal separation from God and all that is good. One of the things that these passages should motivate us to do as Christians is to pray for the lost and to seize opportunities to witness to lost people when we have the opportunity. We can't force them to be a Christian. But we can certainly live in such a way that makes our God and our faith attractive to those without Christ. And again, I remind all of us that we alone will determine which future will be ours. I want to turn to another passage in closing tonight. If you go back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because I want to end on a positive note with us tonight. Remember I said that Revelation reminds us that our destiny is to rule and reign with Christ. Our future is so bright as Christians. It, it is in such contrast to the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, all the demonic realm, and those who ultimately reject Christ as our Savior, as their Savior. But for us, I think what we can take out of Revelation 19 and 20 tonight is this. The major thing is Jesus is coming one day to set up his kingdom. And if you and I know Christ, we are part of that kingdom and we will rule and reign with Christ. And so I think Christ is going to say to us tonight, what takeaway then can we have for right now? I think it's this. This is at least what he spoke loud and clear to me. Jeff, 
Start living your life like you're going to be living with me in the kingdom. I think that's what our earthly life as Christians should be. That, that, that our life should begin to reflect who we really are. And this is who we really are. And that's why Paul chided the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 with these words beginning in verse 1. They were having a lot of trouble with each other in the church. And he says, when any of you has a legal dispute with another, does he dare go to court before the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to settle trivial suits? See, Paul is challenging the church at Corinth. He's challenging us as Christians. He's saying, this is our future, folks. God is going to commit the judgment of this world, the rule and reign of this kingdom to us. And if this is our future, can't we even come together and and settle trivial things today? When God is going to entrust us with much bigger things in the future? Notice he goes on to say, do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge angels? In other words, unlike what some people may picture that when we get to eternity that somehow angels are over us. No, in eternity, we're over angels. See, angels are taking a place below us. And that's why Paul's saying, guys, this is who we are. This is our destiny. This is who Christ, uh, you know, called us to be. This is why Christ came, to give us this kind of future, this kind of destiny. So let's begin to live who we are right now. He says, so if you have, or he says, so why not ordinary matters? Verse 4, so if you have ordinary lawsuits, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between fellow Christians? And on and on he goes. And this was the takeaway for me. When I think about the destiny that Christ has for us as His children, when I think about the awesome responsibility and and the great privilege of of not only being one of God's children, but being part of His kingdom and, and in a sense helping Him rule and reign on this earth, then I think Christ is saying to all of us, because that's our future and we know it, And what a glorious, dignified future we have. Why don't we begin to live and act like it right now? Act like the mature saints of God that we are. And instead of fighting with each other and acting immature and all of this, can't we step up and be men and women of God? And begin to live who we're going to be one day when Christ entrusts us with judging the world and judging angels. Folks, all I can say tonight to leave you with is the best is yet to come. This world and what we endure in this world is the only hell we will ever know. (laughs) One day, The victorious conqueror of the universe is going to split heaven wide open and come to earth and put down all rebellion once and for all. 
And He's going to set up His kingdom. And you and I are going to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So let's end with that, shall we? And let's go out of here tonight and live out the rest of today and and the rest of this week saying, okay, God, I need to step up. I I need to begin to live who I really am. Because that's my destiny. And you want me to begin to live that way right here and now. Let's pray. God, thank you. <laughs> that, that seems so insufficient. But that's all, as human beings, I think we can say is thank you. Thank you, Lord, not only for saving us. Thank you for giving us such a privilege, such a purpose, not only on this earth, but throughout eternity, Lord, you give us such purpose to think, God, that every, everyone here present tonight who has Christ as their Savior, what a future awaits us. it's beyond our ability to even totally wrap our minds around. And we can can get a little bit of it, but when we begin to think about it, we have to end up probably where Paul did. When he said in the book of Romans that I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. God, we can't even imagine what eternity with you is going to be like. And yet, Lord, that's where we're headed. And so, God, may we keep our heads up. May we rise above the challenges that we face. May we overcome temptation. May we learn to live in community with each other in love instead of criticizing and picking each other apart. May we have wisdom within our own congregations to be able to settle things and have clarity about your direction rather than groping in the dark. Because, Lord, you have called us to a wonderful future. Help us to begin to live out that future right here and now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here tonight. Hope to see you all on Sunday. And don't forget, we're having communion on Sunday. Thank you.